Good morning, everyone. I'm Shelly Williams. My pronouns are she, her, and I am coming to you from uh, occupied Nisanan, Maidu, and Miwok land, so-called Sacramento. And uh, so this, this panel uh, is called, uh, you know, is about housing justice. And I was hoping to get some perspectives from both the tenant rights movement and the homeless rights movement and a geographical diversity. Um, and we had that, but two of our panelists haven't showed up yet. So it may just be uh, myself and my comrade from here in Sacramento who um, mostly do on the ground homeless organizing. So it might be a lot more casual and a lot more opportunity for questions um, about the work that we do. Um, so if Shanti Singh and if Savina Martin are here and I'm just not seeing your names or you have a different name, please raise your hand um, and they may show up later. Um, so let's go ahead and introduce Crystal. Um, Crystal is one of my comrades and I'm very excited that she's here to talk about her long-term experience and really important work that she does. Crystal is a Western Regional Director for the National Union of the Homeless. She is president of the Sacramento Homeless Union, president of SACSOUP, which stands for Solidarity, uh, with unhoused people. Is that right? Solidarity. Close. It's uh, Sacramento Solidarity of Unhoused People. Of unhoused People, as well as serving on many boards and commissions locally and nationally. As a community organizer, she knows and understands another world is possible, and it is our mission to create it. So um, welcome, Crystal. And uh, it'll just be a, a pretty casual conversation about kind of the work that we do here. And obviously we have, you know, insight into the bigger picture um, as well. So Crystal, if you just want to start by talking about how you got into this work and um, maybe some more detail about what your work is and maybe your, you know, how you, where it started and how you got to where you are now. For sure. I'm going to have to turn off my camera though, because it's um, doing the lag thing. So I have to do that first. <laughs> okay. Um, so my work encompasses fighting for freedom, inclusion, and social justice, focusing on the multifacets of state, national, and international poverty, and abolishing the systems that have created this intentional harm. We, as a community and as a society, rely on each other. We create our own, and we do not rely on a system that protects property over people. We do not stand around. We do not wait for permission from our local municipalities to do what is morally right, and at times it may not be legally right. We know that laws, criminalization, and intentional poverty are part of a much broader system that is based in systemic racism. My work encompasses breaking down walls of trauma through a racial and equity lens. What brings me to this work is I'm an impacted voice. I am a formerly homeless um, domestic violence survivor. I'm also a former foster group home youth um, that was a ward of the court. Um, so courts and that, that system's been in my life my entire life. Um, I am a child of incar long-term incarcerated parents, um, but mostly I'm a mother and a person who has struggled in poverty, living from paycheck to paycheck, from food bank to food bank, and has been housing insecure most of my life. Thank you, Crystal. Um, and can you talk about like, you know, your kind of timeline of getting into this work? How did you enter into it and how did it um, kind of ramp up to the level that it is today? Yeah, it's been a wild, a wild trip. <laughs> Let's just say that to begin with. Um, I was taken away as a child by CPS and placed into foster group home 
care um, due to my parents being incarcerated. And for me, social justice has always been a thing. I've always been a fighter. I've always been about solidarity, about how we can get our neighbors food. Um, when I went into the foster group home system though, at 18, I'm, I'm 43, I'll just say it. I'm 43, so you know, 20 something years ago, it wasn't the same as it is nowadays. There was no resources. When you turned 18 and you were a ward of a court, you were thrown to the streets. Um, and so from that point on, I made it my mission to not live in my trauma, but to use my trauma and experience to teach others how to survive. Um, and that's where we've been going. And so for about 20, I guess, 23 years, 24, 25 years, um, I have been working with our unhoused communities. Um, I have been doing everything from creating our own systems, creating our own cop watch. Um, we just have, I don't want to say it's an alternative government, but it really is an alternative government at this point, because we know that the policies um, and laws and things that are put in place are based, again, out of systemic racism, which was never made for any of us. Um, and so we do create our own, our own networks. Um, and we just, you know, continue to fight and lead and treat our neighbors and our brothers and sisters the same way we want to be treated. It's just been this continual pattern of work. And like I said, it's kind of been something I've done for 20 years. I've worked in the medical field for 17 of the 20 years, but I've always kept that fight with our own housing groups. Yeah, thank you so much for your work and the way that you inspire this local community. Um, so, you know, this was again going to be somewhat of a bigger housing discussion with, you know, talking about homeless organizing and that scope has kind of been reduced a bit. Um, but if you would, would you speak on like, there's a thing called the miracle question. If you could wave a magic wand right now, what would uh, the U.S. housing system look like and how would it function? For sure. So I'm just let folks know I did write my answers because I thought I was going to have co-panelists <laughs> and I tend to like talk too much. Um, so I'll read the answer and then we can, I guess, go into that. Um, so I put housing as a human right. Everybody should have access to housing and not, I'm not talking about some substandard government funded housing. I'm talking about adequately, adequately defined by the people, adequately, adequately, I can talk today, defined uh, by the need and adequately defined by what a person wants. Like I said before, homelessness is multifaceted, and I believe that housing needs to be in those multifaceted. And what I mean by that is that our housing needs to be environmental friendly. Um, I believe that housing should have rooftop gardens. Neighborhoods should not be seg segregated the way that they are. The value of neighborhoods should be, um, would be its moral value in community, not its capitalistic value. If any law were to be put in place around housing, for me, it would be to ban greedy capitalistic landlords who justify placing people over placing people in poverty by changing access. Oh, sorry, I guess I didn't write that right. By charging unaccessible rents and throwing people back to the streets. The housing system would be community ran. Um, there wouldn't be struggle to choose between paying rent and paying for food in your fridge. The capitalistic view of private property would be gone. We would know our neighbors and we would be safe and we would be, have that open door policy that we used to have. For far too long, the narrative has been forced upon us that we must not trust our neighbors, we must not talk to people, and we must look away. Strangers mean crime and all the other stereotypes, et cetera. We would protect people over property. And I guess to add on to that, you know, we've, we've made national news with some of the sweeps that we've had here, um, especially protecting government-funded public property. Um, 
we had a sweep here in 2019 that made national history. It's in the National Law Center um, Hall of Shame, um, where we had 40 activists, advocates working with 200 people that were on a property. The original um, history of the property was it was a motel with a trailer park on it. Um, people in poverty lived in this place. Um, our lead for our encampment there actually was the hotel manager. And they came in and when they decided to do the snow place like home, I think it was like 2010, um, California's way of ending homelessness was to take over vacant um, hotels and then they were to update them or demolish them and build affordable housing. That didn't happen in this instance. Um, these people were told that they could stay on the lot. And in the meantime, it was everyday law enforcement every 72 hours coming in. They wouldn't sweep them because, you know, there was this, this non-written contract. Um, but then, you know, of course, California wastes a lot of money. Um, we call it poverty pimping in our, in our book. And they um, continued to, you know, collect the funds, but never built the housing. Continued to tear down the hotels, never built the housing. Continued to make people end up in what we call skid rows. Um, and into these encampments. And so with that, um, again, you know, we fought really hard. It was 40 activists blocking a fence, a $60,000 fence at that, okay, $60,000 for a fence for public property. Um, these people had been there for like 10 years. And it was, again, for, about 40 of us activists, and we had to fight against 125 SWAT officers just to remove the people, to put a, to put a lock, to protect this property which has resulted in, oh, so again, 2019, has resulted in over 30 people in that encampment dying from being on the streets. And since this time, again, protecting this property, we have had over 80 sweeps of this, these people that are in this encampment. And so this is what we are dealing with. So my magic wand, but it isn't even about sweeps. It's about getting people inside. It's about getting people in housing, open these vacant buildings. This is like absolutely asinine to me that we have five, you know, five empty houses to everyone, unhoused person. Um, again, it's, I don't believe in the whole statement right to housing because that's been twisted to right to enforce housing. Um, I believe housing is a human right and that's different. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by enforced housing? Yeah, so in right to enforced housing, um, here in Sacramento, our mayor happens to be the co-chair of the statewide homeless housing task force. And again, it's a task force created to write, <laughs> in my view, a report, a very expensive report and hasn't done anything else really. But um, what that means is that um, the right to housing that he had proposed originally was right to enforce housing. And that was the logistics and the wording of it. Um, they would be offered two shelters. And if anybody has worked around homelessness and housing situations, we know the shelters are barbaric. They're terrible. They're congregant. They're they don't offer the services that never leads to housing, um, that, that type of situation. They're to be offered two um, shelters. And if they refuse, then they can be criminalized or forced into these like shelters. And what our shelters are looking like is not what people, what you would think of, you know, if you weren't on the activist side of things, you would think, oh, wow, shelter, food, whatever. That's great. No, it's tent cities on hot pavement. Um, we currently have what are called safe grounds. Um, the tents right now, I'm, we're actually, we just sued two days ago um, because of the heat. We have tents on 100, out, 105 degrees outside, it's 140 degrees on the asphalt. They're forcing people into these situations with cameras. They're searching them at the gate. They're locking them in. Um, it's internment. And they're charging $4,000 per head per month per person 
to give them a tent and two meals, which one of them again is like a bag lunch. It, it's not even healthy. They're not giving them adequate water. They're not doing these things. And, you know, we red flag this internment. This is an internment situation that is happening here in Sacramento and it is being polarized and it's being, you know, or it's being popularized throughout the state. We're watching these tent cities pop up. And again, you know, we have leadership appointed under our, our governor to, to create these non-solutions. And again, it's just, if, if we really want to get into it, it's really about poverty pimping. It's about continuing to push this funding. We can collect billions of dollars as long as there's people on the streets and they don't really have to resource them. There's no metrics. There's no accountability. There's no, you know, they just continue to like collect this funding off the people's struggles and deaths of people on the streets. Yeah. And I know you wanted to talk, you've talked about it some, but uh, you wanted to talk about um, the violence of withholding housing, the violence of, um, you know, sweeps and the violence of what we call the homeless industrial complex, which if you could flesh out what that means too, that might be helpful for people who aren't familiar with that term. Yeah. The homeless industrial complex are like these nonprofits, CBOs that continue to collect money and they're not doing anything. And we have a huge example of that. I'm not going to name a specific name, but we have huge examples of that here in Sacramento where they continue to collect state funding and they're just putting people wherever they're going to put them. They're, and they're with promises of like wraparound services, rehabilitation, mental health services, um, behavioral health stuff. Um, but it's never, it never comes to fruitation. It, it comes to recycling people back to the streets. And then they continue to like keep them in this process where they continue to collect the money off of them. Um, it's not, the narrative is very like, oh, we want to help people that are homeless. We want to help people that have mental health. How can we fund this? Let's, let's get funding for this. Let's continue to collect this funding. But at the end of the day, it never reaches the people on the street who need it the most. So that's the homeless industrial complex. And then um, for that question, like I said, I wrote all this stuff out. Um, we can go into it again. But so I said, um, is there around the violence? Yes. Um, definition of violence is the behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. Synonyms that go along with that are forcefulness, cruelty, sadism, and murderous. The entire system is violent from the root to the end cause. Policies are being placed that perpetuate direct violence through force and cruelty, such as police sweeps in which they use brutal force to remove human habitation, shelter, and force also as like things like forced evictions. These are uh, violent state-created dangers that leave people in greater harm than they were before the harm was perpetuated. Oftentimes this leads to a chain of harm. Uh, we know that our unhoused brothers and sisters are in encampments for protection. They look to each other. Um, they don't have a locked door. They look to each other again for protection. When police sweeps happen, oftentimes within the first three to five days after the sweep, somebody dies, somebody is assaulted, or somebody has a weather-related incident or stress-related incident. Moving encampments has its own stress factors, which are violent. Evictions are the same process. It displaces people into worse conditions. Furthermore, uh, the barriers that are created through this violence and criminalization oftentimes create realistic housing barriers for people. Once you start getting a record, again, it makes it where you can't do this housing stuff. I just did the 100 day challenge, which was here in California, Gavin Newsom put down this 100 day challenge, which was to how to come up with a goal and then to solve the goal, goal in 100 days around homelessness. Ours was to house 46 people who had housing vouchers. I was 
kind of mortified at first. I'm like, oh, how easy, like you guys are ridiculous. Like this is, this is stupid. We should really be trying harder. Um, my job was to find 46 people. We did it in a day and a half that were in encampments, um, get them case management and then the landlord engagement element. We didn't house anybody. So this is the reality of our situation here right now. Um, we often say once somebody becomes homeless, it is nearly impossible to get up and out of the government recycling systems. The violence to those who are in these systems and to the taxpayers comes in the forms of the homeless industrial complex. It is a continual funneling of funding into these poverty pimping institutions that will truly never end homelessness because that would end their profit. Instead, they create uh, ways to circle them through the systems, creating impossible barriers for them to ever receive realistic housing or wraparound services. The violence being perpetuated upon people creates mental health conditions and housing issues in which they are turned and around and then penalized uh, by these same systems for trying to survive. So we keep going rounds with this. Um, violence comes in a lot of forms. Um, if you look and you know, just take this away from housing for a moment, if you look at a domestic violence bill that comes from financial, that comes from physical, that comes from emotional, um, we know that families who have been evicted from, from housing due to like maybe a job loss due because of this pandemic, like a lot of our small businesses closed down, um, end up with mental health conditions after this. Um, it's traumatic. It is very traumatic to go through an eviction, to go through displacement, to try to figure it out, to not have the funds to, especially when, you, and I'm not saying especially, I'm saying with kids, it's definitely hard. When you're BIPOC, it's twice as hard when you're on the streets. You're doubly targeted. Um, we always say that. We always say our unhoused, especially our unhoused Black men, are targeted by law enforcement. They're targeted for being homeless. They're targeted for being Black. It's, it's gotten out of control. And to me, this violence, it crosses every, everything that we fight for. It crosses everything. Um, and it, it has to, like, I, I just don't understand. I mean, we have a, a very small legal team, but I don't understand why, like, legal teams are not jumping on this. Like, it, it's absolutely insane to me. Thanks, Crystal. Um, so, you know, because we are down to two from the original four and both of us are in California, that is our perspective. But um, I also think it's really important because California is often kind of the piloting ground for things that will eventually spread to you if you're not here. So, Crystal, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that is going on on the state level and local level? A lot of times very deceptively named policies. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and what uh, we're fighting against here and what folks um, need to be on the lookout for in their areas soon? Right. It's, it's, a, it's a narrative game. Um, it's very hard because the narrative for so long has been in the arena of political figures and as a paid corporate entity, it has always been like, don't make us look bad. Um, I've even had reporters tell me flat out, like, I can't report on that because certain politicians won't give me stories. Um, so there's a lot of this, this back and forth that's going on. Um, but what we're seeing is how they are wording things and how they are shifting the narrative. They are trying to get people to come against each other, whether that be people with disabilities and unhoused, whether that be, you know, people who are environmentalists and unhoused. Um, they're creating this friction that doesn't exist, but they make it look like it exists. Um, we've had multiple ordinances, multiple like laws, um, bans, you name it, that have come across um, around like ADA issues and encampments on sidewalks. Um, that, 
it's literally when we sit with disability rights who are on our side fighting against what these people are trying to do, to me, it's absolutely ridiculous. And what we're seeing is more and more ordinances that look, they look like this. We want to enforce our local government to build more shelter so we can sweep people. But they're not saying sweep people. So we can safely and stably house people and get them off of places like the river, get them off of the infrastructure, get them off of this. It's you know a fire hazard. It's a public health hazard. Um, they're making it sound like words that we would use, like housing is a right. That's not housing is a human right, um, but it confuses people. And so I'll let you Shelly talk a little bit more about the, the ballot initiative, but state why they're pushing these, uh, like again, like initiatives and laws to remove people and it's to the point like they can't be anywhere. They can't survive anywhere. They can't be on sidewalks. They can't be on, you know, infrastructure. They can't be at city hall. They can't be in parks. Where do they go when our government is going to continue to tear down our public housing and continue to not provide housing and continue to funnel this money again into these shelters? Um, again, this is just a way to make money off of people in my view and to appease, you know, what we call NIMBYs. Um, but at the end of the day, like that word NIMBY is like, I know a lot of people use that word. Um, I look at it in a different perspective. And the way that I do is that homelessness is impacting all of us, whether you own a business, a small business, whether you have a home, whether you're you know, taking your kids to the park, this is impacting all of us, but it's state created in my view. Absolutely. Thank you. And yeah, so here, um, you know, it's going to look different in every state how that, um, you know, anti-homeless rhetoric and policy looks. Um, but we have a very interesting situation here in California because our eco-fascism, which is what it is, is like out there in their Columbia vests and, you know, they vote blue and uh, all of that. Um, but they you know, are, are behind a lot of these really, really cruel, inhumane, just ghastly policies. Um, but they, you know, they couch it in language around human rights, uh, around, they use people-centered language, and they're like, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's maddening. Um, and that, you know, that's our, our you, you know, on the West Coast, I think it's going to look like that a lot more than elsewhere. Um, so right now we have this kind of coordinated statewide effort that's also showing up um, in, in local areas. So um, we just killed one head of the Hydra last week. Um, there was a, a state bill that would have and moved to amend anti-endorsed it. Um, a state bill that would have cleared, it would have... Um, made it legal to sweep anybody living along any parkway or in any public park in the entire state. It was like reduced in scope to only impact Sacramento. And then just last week, thankfully <laughs> it was killed, but we have a county measure um, and a city measure and it's all the same people behind it. And they're doing it in LA and they're doing it all over the state. So it's a very, it's all, it's chamber of commerce, it's real estate, a part, you know, all those people are behind it, but they're making it environmental. They're saying, they're actually lying about a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of mistruths going out there. They've got these propaganda videos saying that the E. coli is due to the people living there when there's been multiple studies, you know, disproving that. Um, and, you know, they talk about the fires 
But when people live outside because they don't have anywhere to go, they have to cook food, you know, um, people have to cook food. So it is, you know, when they act like the adults in the room, it's like, you're actually being the unreasonable ones. This doesn't make sense. What, what do you expect people to do here? Um, and then, you know, there just seems to be a total blind spot from everybody in our leadership that homelessness is like exponentially increasing constantly all the time because of, you know, the, the buying up of all of our housing stock and renting it back to us at, you know, absolutely outrageous prices that we can't afford and no eviction protections and all of that is, um, you know, making it so our numbers, Crystal, what, 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 how, how, can we talk about how our, like here in Sacramento, how much homelessness has increased over the time you've been working in this realm? Yeah, I would also add just really quickly to what you just said. Um, our officials love to co-opt, but when they co-opt, it fails miserably because there's a difference between grassroots organizers who actually care and want to get this work done and you know care about the people. Um, an example of this is they constantly are using the words harm reduction. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of sad Savina's not here because she's one of the original like harm reduction warriors. Um, but they're, they're coming in with these programs and saying, okay, I'm gonna give you an example here in Sacramento. Um, <clears throat> they're saying harm reduction we have our district attorney coming in, pushing fentanyl awareness, you know, while all the grassroots organizations have been doing the Narcan. Um, and then when these, these programs fail and they turn around and it makes it look like we've all failed kind of thing. Um, and so we've been seeing a lot of, again, co-opting words like we have the police department saying, oh, we're out handing out mutual aid. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and in my time, yeah, homelessness has definitely like, I'm not even going to increase isn't even the word <laughs> it, it's it's to me it is insane that our city has two cities we have housed people and we have unhoused people um i'm not going to go back as far as 20 years because literally 20 years ago when i was homeless it was safe to camp on the river it was safe to just be that you know free spirit it was a little safer to hitchhike back in the day <laughs> um, you know do those things but i would say i'm going to go back probably to like 2017, we had about 12, 1300, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, 2019, they did a point in time count, which is where they go out and spend 24 hours, which is completely like inaccurate. Um, they go out, they get as many volunteers as they can to go out to these encampments and count people. And they're not even really counting people, they're counting tents sometimes and then saying there's two people per tent, one person per tent, which we know is not true. Um, they will not go to areas that are where we go. We go, we have 392 camps mapped. Um, here in Sacramento that we, the union has connection with that we work with. Um, and in the beginning of the pit count, it became a controversial thing because what it did was it GPS people. And then right after the pit count, people were being swept. And so people oftentimes hide from the pit count. Um, but since 2019, we had 5,570 people was what was counted. Um, the pit, I sit on the pit count board or the, the COC board or whatever, and the racial equity board. And um, we're looking at 20,000 people since 2019. So we've gained 15,000 people on the street. Um, and this year, it was kind of a great thing that they did. They actually asked if during this time of COVID in 2019, you know, between 2019 and now, if they were moved and who they were moved by. And 70% of these 20,000 people said law enforcement. Um, and what 
is absolutely crazy and asinine to me is that in Sacramento, we had filed a lawsuit suit during the pandemic to stop sweeps because what we told the court is that we all have the right to shelter in place. Like we shouldn't have to be moving around. Where's the water? Where's the hygiene? Where's the hand washing stations? You've taken away all this access. Um, and so, you know, we, we get a lot of this blame. Um, I've been in multiple meetings where people have blatantly without saying my name said, this is your fault. You sued. Now all the people are on the streets. I'm like, no, all the people came out of the woodwork. All the people have come from the rivers where you've pushed them to. All the people are like coming out of these, these areas that are unsafe and being free to be on the streets. I mean, I would love for people to be free in their own homes, but you know, it's allowed them to do that. Uh, but when the state reopened the state of California, which was June 15th, the sweeps restarted. And so again, we, we took that time to create our own, um, whether that be connections, creating camp leadership. Um, and we have contact every day. Like when there's sweeps happening, they contact us. Um, and so we, we can record and we know what's happening in our encampments. Um, and then we, we filter it out, whether that be through sweep defense, whether that be through cop watch, whether that be through whatever's happening, we can send people out um, and protect our people. Because again, it's about creating our own. It's about understanding that this is a systemic problem. And yes, we need to fight at the systemic level, but they were never there to begin. Uh, they were never there for us to begin with. And so it's either create our own and keep our people safe and alive or, you know, do nothing. So 20,000 people though, I'm waiting to see LA's. I'm, I know I'm pretty sure LA's is like 10 times what it was. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And I would say too, just really quickly, um, we do compare a lot of stuff to California because we do have like the, you know, the, the largest amount of unhoused folks, but this is happening across the nation. Um, our national union, we have locals in Washington, Pennsylvania, um, all over, but um, in Chicago, and we're seeing the same trends. Um, they're learning from each other. This In California, they have statewide meetings with all of the mayors, these big city mayors. They have the League of Cities, which is all of the cities, the Association of Counties, which is all of the counties, coming together, sitting around a table, planning on how they can criminalize. Um, we literally have a picture of our um, we have a Department of Community Response. That's a whole nother story. That's That would be a whole nother webinar. <laughs> but it has a picture with Martin versus Boise and ways to get around it, which for here, Martin versus Boise. Martin versus Boise here, um, and I, I think it's the Ninth District Courts, upholds that um, a unhoused person cannot be criminalized by any municipality when no adequate shelter is available, but they do it anyway. Um, but yeah, so there's ways to get around it. And so they are doing this statewide, nationally, internationally. We actually organize with the African Shack Dwellers. Um, we've done webinars with them. We're, we're pretty closely. This is the same, it's the same story. Um, if you get a chance, watch the movie Dear Mandela, you will see exactly what's happening here, happening everywhere. It's, it's internationally that this is going on, so. Can you talk a little bit more about the you know what a what a homeless union is uh what the you know strategy is how people can support um their local homeless union yeah we still are in the process of oh life has been crazy <laughs> so life has been crazy so the national union of the homeless was around in the 80s and 90s um our two major wins were we fought against hud and we were able to get a percentage of housing be deemed affordable um, and we did that through housing takeovers where people literally went in, took up vacant HUD homes and 
stayed in them until these policies were changed. Um, and so we won that. We also run the right to vote using a cross street if you're unhoused. Um, prior to that, you had to have a residence and that didn't work. Um, and so how uh, we're in the process of, we, re, re, we reestablished the, um, the homeless union in 2019 in Washington, DC with Poor People's Campaign when we went for the Poor People's Campaign event. Um, and so we, that was like June and then like COVID hit. <laughs> and so we've been in this kind of like this, like just um, survival mode, but we are creating the, the uh, unions. And what the unions encompass are us going into these encampments um, and they are, the leadership of the union is unhoused, formerly unhoused, people couch surfing, people that fight, that follow those definitions, people in the shelters, we're organizing in shelters. Um, and again, we create leadership and we just, we fight for, you know, what our folks are doing. We're taking people to city hall um, who normally didn't, we're uplifting voices, getting impacted voices in these meetings, like we're tired of people having these policy meetings without an impacted voice in them. Um, so we're just kind of everywhere, but we're currently in the process of reestablishing our, uh, or restructuring stuff a little bit, because like I said, it's just, everything kind of flowed with COVID. Thank you. So um, I think we can go ahead and open up the chat for other questions. This was an 80 minute session, but there was going to be four people. There's just two and we'll stay on as long as people have questions. Um, but before we go to those questions, I just want to ask one more, Crystal. Um, you know, obviously, your homeless union organizing, uh, you know, is a, I guess, what, what gives you hope um, right now? Everything sucks. Everything's terrible. feels like it's getting worse. Um, but I think there's a lot of, you know, things that we can have hope in. And I just want to know what those things are for you right now. Absolutely. And I did uh, have an answer for your tenant question if you want to. I know the tenants people aren't here, but yeah. Uh, um, I can answer that after, but my hope is it isn't hope. It's we're the people. We are the people. Like we, again, I, I hate, I, I was never like this anti-government. Like I didn't understand organizing. I didn't understand any of that. I worked in the medical field. Like I lived life the way it was, but wrong is wrong morally. Like if it feels bad inside, this is wrong. And what gives me hope is that the people are like fighting. They're standing up. Um, our unhoused folks, you know, people discriminate, like, it, it makes me crazy, like, to, like, hear people talk about our unhoused, I don't know if you guys have next door, but next door is, like, the anti-homeless wall of shame, um, I've been able to actually break through a lot of barriers with these people and get the understanding, and as horrible as COVID has been, like, it literally has, like, sh like, shined a light on, like, community and bringing people together, um, our homeless union here in Sacramento, we have over 2,800 members. Our SAC Soup Coalition, it, that was uh, brought and made in the beginning of COVID because what happened was the homeless union was a few people with vehicles, because again, most of us are formerly unhoused or are unhoused. Um, and it brought together all of these people that wanted to come together and work. And we have everybody from radical groups to religious groups. I mean, it's, it's the whole gamut of people coming together. And so what gives me hope is just that we can do this. Like, again, we never needed them. <laughs> we, it's just, we have to take back our power. You know, we have to take back our voice and not allow for these things to railroad us. This is like the elite few, if that makes sense. There's a lot of us, there's 140 million people in the United States that are poor and at that poverty line. We need to just like take back our power. Absolutely, thank you. 
So yeah, it sounds like you had an answer prepared. So we were going to kind of try to merge the tenant rights movement and the unhoused rights movement into um, a singular conversation. I was really excited about that. And I think we can still do a little bit of that. Um, Crystal and I are both involved in our local tenants union as well. And uh, Jenny has just asked me in DMs to share a personal tenant union related win that I personally had. Um, and I, I think that's a great idea. So Let's start, Crystal, um, with the, so the question was, is um, tenant rights and unhoused rights are often seen as two discrete spheres of organizing. Uh, how can we build more solidarity and power between these two fronts of struggle that are so intertwined? All right, so here's my long-winded answer. This is when I was like, dang, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say it because we have all these panelists. <laughs> okay. Um, so I put internally, we need to break down this divide. Um, and it's not really a divide. It's just more of kind of where we're, our capacity is where we, we kind of want to focus more on. Um, it's one and the same. Housed people become unhoused. Unhoused people become housed and generally deal with tenants' rights issues. We've got to break down the silos in activism and advocacy. Divisions or lack of collaboration only makes our work twice as hard. If you follow labor and the history of homelessness, you will understand it is all based off of displacement of housing. Here's a quick history brief of displacement and why we need to organize. And this is gonna be super quick. I actually have the slides for this though, if you guys are interested in it. So from 1800 to 1860, pre-Civil War, rapid industrialization happened, which included a shift towards wage labor opposed to practicing trades. So instead of us trading things, we started paying for things. Um, so 1862 to 1930, post-Civil War, our population of job-seeking workers expanded as the veterans and freed slaves joined the rank of the unhoused due to the post-war depression and unregulated capitalism, creating more instability for workers. What did that equal? Displacement. People started losing their jobs. They ended up on the streets. 1930 to 1950, the Great Depression happened. After the Depression, negative economic impacts spread. Skid rows, um, also as we call today our streets, um, became densely congregated, again, to develop um, cities and, and counties and country, across country. Displaced people creating communities as they sought to take refuge for themselves. The homeless crisis began to have a widespread impact, again, creating displacement. 1950 to 1970 was uh, urban development. Mid-19th century, the U.S. began to execute systemic change that shifted the narrative on homelessness. Skid rows and streets started becoming swept and cleared in the name of urban renewal and gentrification. New housing regulations on policies were put into place, such as zoning, plumbing, and fire code. Um, this resulted in tenements, which for people that don't know what that means, that is um, a room or set of rooms forming a separate residence within a house or a block of apartments or a house divided into and rented out as separate residents, especially um, one that may be run down and is overcrowded. Um, so eventually these were tore down. While this did raise the bar for conditions of housing structures, low-income populations were left out. Housing became expensive to build and maintain and single occupancy rooms were also depleted, creating, again, displacement um, and homelessness. Set 1970 to 2000, the chronic systemic problem era. Shelters and organizations began to pop up to fill in these gaps, to, to try to fill in the gaps of people being on the streets. By this, uh, but at the same time, several court cases uh, came about and established right to shelter and homeless assistance on the federal level. So, however, um, at the same time, the federal budget cuts to social services further exasperated the homeless crisis. Again, 
creating this displacement and then now creating the homeless industrial complex. And then we're here. So 2000 to 2020, the current housing and homeless situation remains the same and is still being exasperated. And we are repeating history by skyrocketing rents, low minimum wage, automation taking jobs. We are forced, uh, we are force, forcefully criminalized and um, all due to a failed broken system. The people are still on the streets, struggling, trying to survive. Again, retreating to the streets and makeshift tents, vehicles, RVs, um, just to survive. People are being priced out again due to gentrification and low wages. So again, it's displacement um, and nowhere for people to be. Um, and then I put, so again, it's going to take all of us organizing from tenants rights levels to those on the streets to create housing solutions we all want to see. Um, we only get what we're organized to take. That's our, <laughs> that's our like, uh, our slogan so that's kind of where we're at with it but yeah the tenants it has to it has to come together it's it's not two different things in my view exactly thank you so much so you know my personal story uh is that i moved to sacramento in 2016 um and i shortly after that became a single parent of a two-year-old and i was living in an apartment um that Basically, over the course of, I signed a shorter lease on the second one because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But um, basically, my rent went up 25% over two rent raises that were eight months apart. And I couldn't afford to live there anymore. I made $15 an hour um, and I was displaced. I had to leave. Um, I ended up moving into an unsafe situation um, for, for a while. Uh, and then the owner of that house um, sold it to uh, a flipper. So I was once again displaced. Then I moved into the place I have now, thankfully through word of mouth and connections. And I'm really grateful for that. But uh, I had to lie on my application. Um, thankfully I had a boss who would lie for me. Most people don't have that. And I was able to kind of beat the system a bit, but legally I'm not supposed to be in this home, in this home that I'm in now, the one I'm sitting in right now. I, on paper, like technically do not, uh, I shouldn't be living here. So, um, I'm honest about that because like, that's what people have to do to get into housing. So we're living here for a while. Our landlord is being, you know, I'm, I was with a roommate and my, my kid, our landlord started off trying to be our friend, really nice to us, gave us a gift at Thanksgiving, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then at, at some point, uh, we asked for the dryer to be fixed. Turned into this whole thing. And he turned us over to a property management company when we were um, working you know, directly with him uh, up until that point. And then shortly after that, um, what was the percentage of the rent raise? We were, sorry, we were handed a new lease proposal from this property management company with a 29% rent increase. And thankfully, because we are connected with our tenants union, we knew who to go to. Um, and we, asked for help and guidance. Um, we, you know, learned that that is 100%, even with our terrible tenant protection here in California, was still egregiously beyond 9% is the maximum raise, which would have been $167. I spent 
so much time that like nobody should ever have to spend this much time going back and forth with the property management company and just being gaslit over and over because you know you're right and they just keep messing with you because they want to wear you down it was such an educational experience because I'm like this probably works actually Shelby is also on the call that's my roommate we went through this together <laughs> um so it was uh you know very educational but also made me see most people do not have capacity to do what we did um and it it you know so what happens is most people will self-evict under these conditions they they don't know their rights they're afraid um and they're just like i just need to make other plans so that i have housing um or you know they they don't end up having <laughs> an alternative and that's how a lot of people end up on the street so you know, thanks to the tenant union, we were able to get, we were able to learn the, you know, department through which to um, get a strongly worded letter sent to our landlord. That is a government uh, uh, department that usually does not respond back to anybody, but because we copied the tenants union in our correspondence, they said, be really aggressive and make sure you keep naming us. And we finally got it. And uh, that was the end of that. Our everything that was in our like billing just changed back to what it was before. So we won that round. Uh, but it was uh, at, like, I don't know how many hours, you know, and how much anxiety and stress was, um, you know, spent during that process. It was, it was very harrowing and awful, but we won. Um, so anyway, point being, I know that I am just like one thread away, right? Um, from from the people who are living on the street, and it's been you know luck and connections, but uh, you know I, I I know that that is just one step away for me. So that is why that is where my solidarity comes from, and that is why I spend so much of my time, um, you know, working with and and organizing with uh, our unhoused communities. Thank you, Jenny, for uh, for prompting that. Um, so let's see, I have, so from the, uh, from Petra, uh, what are some ways to respond or disrupt the divide and conquer tactics related to how Crystal was sharing that tension was being fabricated between disabled and homeless folks? You want to take that one, Crystal? Sure. Um, we take it to the source. We take it to the impacted voices and we bring those voices loud. Um, I know it gets overwhelming. I, I get stressed out. You can ask Shelly. I send messages I'm like, Ur! so frustrated. But um, at the end of the day, it's it's about calling out their bull, just to put it frankly. Um, we have written letters with disability rights. We have, you know, brought, and not, I'm not just talking about disability rights. I'm talking about local organizations that are doing the work that maybe are fighting around disability rights. Um, we come together, we write letters, we um, we get loud, we do social media, um, whatever we need to do to show that this isn't adequate, this isn't right. Um, we, we've literally called them out on it. We've had people in wheelchairs sitting next to the tents saying, I'm okay with this encampment here. And the people in the tent saying, we've made enough space, we're, we're making sure there's four feet for people to pass. Um, and so there's just, ways around it but again 
it, it's just, it's calling, it's the BS because they, they always make it sound like it, but there's always ways to bring out those impacted voices to say, no, this is what's really going on. Absolutely. And then I, I want to add to that, if, if folks were here yesterday um, and heard from Dr. Daniel Lee, who's on the Move to Amend board, he was in the Brain on Capitalism panel, and he's also the uh, mayor of Culver City, which is near uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and I'm not saying putting our faith in electeds is not what I'm saying at all, but what I am, there are creative solutions. And one of the ones that he came up with that I thought was really beautiful was augmenting the sidewalk, you know, instead of pitting two groups that have tons of overlap against each other, um, you know, there are like really easy things that can happen um, that can make room for everyone and make everyone safe and they can be where they need to be. Um, I also want to like talk about to the, you know, the pitting the environmental movement again, you know, unhoused. Uh, one thing that, so our representative, our state representative here is kind of one of the, he was behind the state sweep bill and he did a kind of photo op event at um, the American River here to kind of promote that bill and be all environmentalists or whatever. So we did a direct action there. We went ahead and we chalked the entire sidewalk with messages like sweeps kill, where will they go? Um, things of that nature. And as they were taking their walk, we stayed with them and we continued to chant sweeps kill, where will they go? And the number of people who were just people who thought they were good liberals, you know, um, and care had not, some of them had never thought about this that deeply before. And there were, you know, we got pulled aside. Some people were very annoyed and very frustrated that we were there, but there was also a lot of people who were able to make that connection maybe for the first time and, you know, uh, showed appreciation for us kind of pointing that out. So, you know, yeah, drawing attention to those contradictions um, is like ongoing work. Was there something else you wanted to say, Crystal? Yeah, I would definitely say just continue to protest the actions, continue to be like, hold your documentation. I We document everything and we document, even if it's stuff that I document to myself to like kind of remind myself, I send it via email because we say email is for evidence because it's timed down, it's like timestamped, it's dated. Um, we wanna make sure that we've done when I send, I send a lot of letters to the mayor and to our politicians here. Um, I know I'm absolutely not going to get a response. I know I'm absolutely, I'm not doing it to get a response because at this point I know that that's where they're at. Um, but I do do it for due diligence for when we do come after them in the legal arena. And sometimes we do come in the, at the, uh, in the legal arena. But I think that again, just doing what, what your insides tell you to do. If that is a protest, protest it. It's, you know, I'm all for that. Like I, you know, chaining motorhomes together, stopping these cameras. I don't care. We got to do what we got to do. It's, it's to the point where like, when you look at somebody in their eyes and you know that what their enforcement is being opposed on them, you may not see that person tomorrow. For me, I will stand in front of that person because that's not, I'm sorry, you're not going to assign, assign a death sentence to somebody that I care about. Whether it's whether it's somebody I don't even know because that's that's human life that ain't you know it's not okay it's not right so do what you what you feel um, 
I tell people to try to stay within the legal. They hate when you know when you know your rights, learn your rights, because they hate it when you tell them when you say know your right stuff to cops, they get so mad. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> they also hate being watched. They play a lot of games with their sweeps. Um, they'll say they're coming on a day and then they'll come on a different day because they they know that will show up and uh hold them accountable and also, you know, film them and they, uh, they hate that. So it's a, uh, it, that is like an ongoing strategic battle. <laughs> um, I want to point out, thank you so much, Enabel, for putting these in the chat. Um, the Autonomous Tenant Union Network is a North American collaborative of tenant unions committed to building tenant power. And I also want to say that this weekend is their first in-person national conference and some of our friends are there. So that's really exciting. And I hope a lot of really juicy, good cross-pollination things happen there. Um, so I'm feeling that energy from afar, but I'm super glad that's happening. Um, and Millie's question was, we are constantly told that voting blue will significantly help poor and marginalized folks in general. Do you see a difference in policy and or change in the violence enacted against unhoused and tenants alike under Democrat leadership? I see it in both. I honestly, like, the government just is sickening to me. When did we become about red, blue, green, colorful colors, whatever? When did we become about that? Because this is not, in my view, like we, again, are talking about human life. We're talking about our society. We're talking about our communities. and the democratic party like is perpetuating horrific violence the republican party i'm scared like terrified because they look at unhoused people and people that are in poverty as business opportunities and so both entities in my view it doesn't matter what you're voting for in my view if you are voting for violence if you are perpetuating violence you're guilty in any way to me it's a moral compass thing versus a again legal political law um I, it's really sickening to me because like part of my life before I was in foster care, I was raised by my great grandma who immigrated here from Mexico. And just the way that she lived and her views about people, the way that we treat people, it, that's like rubbed off on me. And I think that again, we've become such a political, like militarized, criminalized, like entity, like where is the moral compass? Like we can't even be, just be, we can't be free. We can't be you know, unless you have those, you know, huge paychecks that can have you buy everything, even then you're not free. I mean, you're not happy. I mean, most people aren't, at least that I know of that are rich. Um, I just think at the end of the day, like, yes, we have a political situation. Yes, democracy needs to be a part of that situation because it is there. But at the same time, like, red, blue, wherever you're at, like, it, it's got to stop. Um, nobody's different than anybody else. I don't care if you're a politician. I don't care if you're somebody on the streets you're no different. And so to me, again, it's taking this leadership and this control over other people's lives and telling them what to do with themselves, their bodies, and the way that they live is disgusting in my view. Absolutely. Like I said, I wasn't yeah. anti-government prior to this. I actually was running for lieutenant governor at the beginning of this round, um, but didn't make it on the ballot because my grandma died. So I didn't get down there to do that. But see, again, it's bringing our people in and actually like us as the people deciphering who those people are who those people are true that are true to changing what we want or the values that we want to see changed 
Yeah, because there are a handful of people in elected government who who really do care, such as Daniel, who was on our panel yesterday. You know that he, you know, he's real, but that's rare. And so the discernment is like Republicans will explicitly use dehumanizing language because that's what works on their base, and Democrats will basically lie to their base and tell them, "Oh, we're helping, and you, if you supporting this will be helpful, and it's actually violent." So that's kind of the. <laughs> The difference. This is interesting. Thank you, JD, for um, giving that because I think this is this will lead into another important kind of discussion. So, JD tells the story. A cautionary note: In Colorado, a mayor spent a few nights with the houseless. His takeaway: The people there want to be homeless, and it was not that bad, not verbatim. The thing is, he knew in the back of his mind if he got cold or needed a shower or a hot meal at a table, etc., he could simply go home to his own bed. I'm sure his opinion would be different if he truly had no place to go. Not having a place to sleep can be truly mind-bogglingly and painful as one sleeps in the rain or on the cold, hard ground. For this mayor who was a former legislator to truly understand and speak for the homeless, he needs to experience the true mind-body effect of not having a stable place to call home. This was a sad commentary as he is a supposed leader. So there's a lot of rhetoric around this, around refusing services and people wanting to be homeless. Uh, what do you say to that, Crystal, that rhetoric that people who live outside want to uh, above anything else? Right. I think that that, and this probably is maybe biased a little bit, but <laughs> I think that that was his personal agenda and what he was trying to aim for and understand. Um, we also had in Santa Cruz, a council member go undercover and was unhoused, actually was harassed by law enforcement <laughs> in Santa Cruz on the streets. Um, and so he, and he ended up having to like go home. Um, and so there's, there's two sides to every like story, but when it comes down to like service and what they claim is service resistance, if you look at the services, you would be resistant as well. Like a lot of these services are not meant for the people. Again, they're meant under, they're bent under capitalism. So it's like these here, let me give you a card for mental health and then I'll never call you back or wait, you're having a mental health crisis here. Let me arrest you and put you in jail. Like people are not service resistant. They are scared at this point because the services that have been provided have been awful. I have roach motels. We have children right now being taken out of these shelters because it's a way for them to monitor them. We have parole sweeps happening in our motels. Like, and these are, these are all city sanctioned or county sanctioned, whatever's. Um, so again, service resistant isn't necessarily that people are service resistant. If I walk into an encampment and I say, Hey, here's what I got today. Let's, let's work on this. Like we got behavioral health connection. This person I trust, no worries. Like this, this is actually a good person that is gonna do this work. That's great. But when you have these government funded paid agency navigators that don't give a crap about their job, people are not gonna connect with you. You have to like lead with impacted voices on this stuff. And also, you know, people have, before I moved out here, uh, you know, I, I went to school for social work. I had a background in kind of housing first. And I also worked on 211, which we have here, but we had it, this was back in Indiana. And what I kind of deduced was that you can get somebody unhoused to agree to go to a shelter the first time. And then after that, you know, I would go through lists. They would call and be like, I need somewhere to go. And I'd go through that one. And you would just hear all these traumatic stories of things that happened or things that they had to give up or lose. 
And these are temporary options, you know, here, especially um, in Sacramento, there is nothing on the other side of that shelter and that shelter is not forever. So you are basically giving up all of your things, maybe your animal, maybe your relationship because couples can't be in every shelter together. Um, and so, you know, these are really valid reasons to not want to choose that particular service, but it gets framed as they don't want to do anything. It's like, if you give somebody a real home, they would actually really appreciate that. But that is not right. you. I would say, or even just the goal to like actually have that real home. Like not, not to say that, hey, yeah, we're going to get you into housing. That's different than actually like working that system to get into housing. Um, that's not happening. And what we are seeing, and this is really kind of, I don't know the best way to say this, but this is really disgusting. The sheltering systems here right now, they're doing um, transitional housing. And what that looks like is if you've ever been in a group home, it's like a group home setting. Um, so they'll take one house, put multiple people per room, um, and they bring them in these situations. But they're their way of saying that they're bringing impacted voices is they create house leadership out of somebody else who's been unhoused. Um, we have brothels running out of our, our shelters, honestly. We have trafficking happening out of our stuff. Um, it's dangerous. And a lot of times the violence is being perpetuated by staff members. Um, our safe ground currently, they're getting paid minimum wage and the people hate homeless people. Like literally they say it, like even in our hotels, like they call them names all day long. And so I mean, would you choose to like be in a, in a tent where you can keep your space and do what you need to do? Or are you going to go somewhere where they're going to be telling you everything to do and then abusing you in the process? Like it just doesn't, it, it's not okay. And then people that are long-term unhoused, there's people that choose to be unhoused. Once you've become unhoused, that PTSD and stress and trauma and learning to survive, it's hard to be in four walls once you've been experiencing that. Um, I will say it. I have not been unhoused for like 20 years now. And I still have that hustle mentality. And I mean, it helps out when it comes to mutual aid and that kind of stuff, but I still have that mentality because that's something that I had to learn as part of like, it became part of me. And so the same thing with people who are unhoused, like we need, a lot of times people will be placed into some sort of housing if they do get the housing or some sort of situation and they freak out, they panic, they don't know what to do. And that's because the wraparound services never come. There has to be a full circle. It has to be like housing, wraparound service that people want, not that they're forced upon them because that never works. Um, so yeah, I think that that's just an added addition to that. And it just reminded me, I just want to do, want to do a little bit of storytelling here because um, I think this is a really great example of when people try to engage those services and what it ends up looking like. So there's a, there's a nearby um, RV encampment to where I live that Crystal and I are both very familiar with. And there is a family, a married couple with four kids they work and they got uh, approved for this hotel program um, because they worked, which is, you know, I mean, this is like the model family, right? Uh, they need a child care, but they have two little ones, especially two of their kids are special needs. And so um, the mom, her mother would, who's also unhoused, needed to be the person to provide that child care. But because she isn't in their immediate nuclear family, she's not allowed at that hotel. So they can sleep there at night, they go to work, and then they have to schlep their kids back to the camp. Now it's really hot, right? And leave their kids there because that's the only way they can get childcare. So instead of being in an AC with their grandma, they're out, you know, grandma's old too, you know, this is very a very difficult situation. 
then, you know, these places are, these hotels are like jails. Um, another woman who lives across the way in the camp, in the RV camp, uh, just uh, went into services and is, is being placed at the same hotel with her daughter. And all those kids play together in the encampment. But in this hotel, they're not allowed to play with each other. So these are like cousins who are not allowed to interact at all because they went into this hotel situation. So this is, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's a prison, you know, so these are not, these are not humane services that are being offered. They're, they're awful. And, uh, and they could be a lot better with just even small changes, but um, they, they need it to feel carceral for whatever reason. So um, saw a lot of discussion, uh, questions around uh, corporate buyout of housing. Yes, that's 100% a huge problem here as it is all over the country and a major factor in, in what we're seeing. Um, Greg had a question and Crystal, I think you can speak better to this because I think you're a little bit more involved in this realm. I'm just starting to get to know some of these folks, but he asked, what support for your work is there from the faith and ethical community? Is there a difference between established well-to-do congregations versus lower income ones? I know there are some like, you know, interfaith uh, organizing around, um, you know, in this realm. So do you, can you speak to that? Yeah, so I'm, I'll just say it, I'm, I'm considered the troublemaker. <laughs> I'm like even looking for a job right now, everybody's like, well, you're that union girl. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's me. Um, so I'm kind of the, the, I'm looked at as the person who's going to push back. I'm the person who will sue if I have to. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to like sound weird, but like a lot of these organizations will like they will support me from the sidelines and they will support the union from the sidelines. But a lot of our religious um, entities, like we have a coalition here in Sacramento, I'm not going to name names, but there's a big coalition of churches. Um, they are in the pockets of these politicians. Um, they create their own little homeless groups to talk about policy. Um, but again, no impact of voices. These churches honestly don't, they understand like, like one of the topics right now is Cal Lane. And instead of like having impacted voices and how is this really going to impact people, they talk about people based off of data. Um, and so we don't really get that kind of support. Um, we do get a lot of support with Sac Suit though, with our more radical churches, radical folks that are um, just even independently, you know, religious entities um, doing like mutual aid, serving food on the weekends, um, things like that. Um, so yeah, we don't get like financial assistance. I've only received one government grant, which I swore I would never do, but it was the wake of COVID and we really needed help in the beginning. Um, we got $2,500 for some sleeping bags, had to jump through every freaking hoop in the book. Um, we'll never do that again. Everything that we have done has been supported by the community. So, or like at the time I was working, so a lot of my money has gone to this and a lot of, um, again, just like if I need something on Venmo, like, hey, we have an ice chest, hey, there was a sleep here, we need, we need this and that. Um, so that's where our support comes from. But yeah, the religious community, I don't want to come down on them, but they go to church on Sunday, they walk over homeless people on Monday. And that's, that's literally what it, it is. Um, and I'm not saying everybody, because it isn't everybody. But that's kind of what we see. Um, Houston has come up a couple times in here. And I just want to underscore that that is a really good example of what happens when money goes directly into housing. People get housed and they stay housed often for the most part. Um, and 
you know, I don't know what the numbers are, you know, here, I, I think it would be very difficult to really gauge it. But, um, you know, the, the amount of money that goes into sweeps, paying law enforcement, paying the toes, you know, uh, all the things that they do to just harass and make life difficult for a huge swath of the people in this community um, is uh, probably egregious and probably would translate into a lot of housed people if it were redirected. Um, I would add too, just really quickly, Shelly, that the amount of money that they're paying for these people to be in shelters. So again, $4,000 oh, yeah. per, per month to be in a, in a tent or $5,000 to be in a congregant shelter with no services. We could take that, take those people and put them, utilize that money. Even if the government has to keep their freaking hands in it, why are we not paying for apartments and leases? And why are we not doing that? Again, it's just, it's just funneling back. So I think that that's a huge part of that. This isn't about services. They keep saying services. And that's where people, the common person who is on the fence, who doesn't understand, is going to say, oh, well, that's services for the homeless people. Great. That's not the reality, though. That is correct. So I think what I'm going to do now is read um, what Petra added to the chat, because I think it's really powerful. And then maybe just talk about how people can support um, your work, the work here. So um, I'm not going to click on the post, but I'm going to read the, the text of it. Um, it says, maybe your client isn't non-compliant. Maybe they're not feeling safe with you. They're not feeling safe in general. You're not hearing their concerns. The modality you're using is more harmful than helpful. There's no flexibility to your approach. You haven't earned your client's trust. You're addressing the wrong thing. You're reenacting oppression. You're not the best fit for them. So simple and powerful. As someone who came out of social work, I got radicalized out of social work because I can't, like, I can't, I, I couldn't, I, it was too difficult <laughs> to work in those confines. I couldn't do the things that I actually wanted to do. Um, and, uh, and that is, you know, um, not all social workers, obviously, but a lot of them. And, uh, and thank you for sharing that, Petra. Um, so Crystal, how can people support your work, our work? our work, all of our work. <laughs> it's all of our work. Um, just, I guess on the forefront, like, you know, I believe in free. <laughs> so free, free is use your power, use your voice, lift these voices up, like get, if you, if, you know, we always tell people like what, whatever your capacity is. Like, I understand some people are fearful to go to encampments. We get it. Like we understand, but there's multiple ways in which you can engage, whether that be calling your local board of supervisors when these ugly po policies are coming through. Um, there's just a lot of ways. Um, for, we we seek like physical donations. Um, we do collect, like I said, money sometimes when it comes from the community, but I'm really about kind of the free cycle idea. And again, creating our own, reusing, recycling, that kind of stuff. Um, so if you're local, donations like that, um, or I'm willing to, we have people mail stuff to me all the time. Um, if not, if you wanted to do like monetary type stuff, um, you can go to our website. It's sacramentalhomelessunion.org and it will um, connect you to all of that stuff. And then um, as far as creating unions, if you're interested in that, um, I'm definitely willing to have those conversations. Also definitely willing to have conversations around creating mutual aid networks. Um, we've got all the, the information around all that stuff. 
Yeah, I agree. And if you're a tenant, join a tenants union. If you haven't already, um, there might not be one in your area. I'm not saying start one. That's a big lift. But if there is, you know, and, and if you are not a tenant, if you are an owner, you know, there's ways that you can give um, to your local tenants union and your local homeless union and support that organizing um, for people who don't own any property and have to deal with the violence that comes along with that. Um, Let's see if there's anything else in here. Yeah, so um, thanks Keon for all your fire comments as usual. Thanks everyone for rolling with kind of the change and the vibe, but I think it was still really good. And uh, I really appreciate Crystal. Um, Crystal inspires me all the time and uh, I'm, I'm honored to do this work and super honored to share it in the space. So, oh, I have a hand up. Oh yes, let's see. Unmute. Do you want to go ahead, Joe? Hi. Uh, you certainly have um, inspired everybody to get uh, emotionally committed to this issue. Um, I wondered if you or Crystal have, um, I, to me, this whole weekend is about building alliances, learning from others, uh, connecting. And I wondered if you had done any of that with the Henry George approach. Uh, which would reduce the price of land, which would make housing more affordable, which would make it more possible for uh, nonprofit builders and so forth to build uh, more uh, um, uh, affordable homes, make it possible for municipalities to purchase land to build more affordable homes. Um, uh, Henry George was against uh, wealth extraction, which is obviously what you were fighting in the, in the in, in the hoarding of land. So uh, I wondered if you folks have done any connection with the Henry George approach. Thank you. Personally, I uh, haven't really operated on that level. I'm definitely more in kind of the mutual aid, sweep, defense, support work. Uh, but Crystal, do you? Uh... Actually, like, like I would love more information. I am, like I said, this is all just kind of come into this more political arena for me more within the last few years. Um, so like under, I'm still navigating and understanding all this stuff. Um, I did just get on the board of the community land trust here in Sacramento. And so um, definitely something I'm interested in. We're definitely trying to acquire land, trying to keep it affordable um, and trying to stop these, like you guys were talking about the corporate landlords. We have Blackstone through the state of California. Literally, if you look at a map of what Blackstone's bought, it lights up like a Christmas tree. Like it, it's like corporate takeover kind of thing. Um, so yeah, definitely interested. If you want to email me, um, my email link is also attached to that website. Um, I would love some more information. And once again, oh, oh, thank you. I was gonna say, you know, one of our panelists is with the San Francisco Community Land Trust and also does tenant organizing um, and she wasn't able to make it today. So I'm really sorry we didn't have that kind of strong perspective and experience to offer, but um, so, okay. Well, um, is there anything else you wanted to say, Crystal, before we close out? Just that I appreciate all you guys taking the time to be here and to like keeping up this fight. I know revolution's a huge word. <laughs> like people are like, yes, revolution. But it's like, at the end of the day, like, again, it's just getting back what's ours and continuing to like fight for our people and just lifting up those voices. Like I cannot say it enough, like wherever you can put an impacted voice, get that impacted voice in there and don't allow them to be tokenized while they're there. <laughs> That's it, thanks. All right, thanks, Crystal.
All right, thanks everyone. I'm gonna pass it over to Petra from our care circle before we go into our long lunch pause, which I hope everybody comes back from because uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff on the other side of that. Thanks again.